You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today. We're your source for growth in the area of national security law every week, whether you're locked down or free range, like the chickens are advertised to be. I'm Elisa. I mean that. And today we're going to discuss the one bill that must pass every year. Seriously, dire consequences will ensue without it. Of course, it is the national security law of all laws, the National Defense Authorization Act, or NDAA, for those in the Pentagon. This year, as years pass, it is a whopping 4,517 pages long. A quick reminder before we get into the meat of the podcast, as always, the lawyers on NSLT are here in their individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or company. Um, and that's really important. Meat of the podcast, I was thinking more in the nature of plant-based protein. But anyway, our guests today include our sometimes contributor and always friend, Andrew Boreen, who is the managing director of federal and public sector at Cyber Reason. Uh, he is also the editor of the ABA Sourcebook on Intelligence Law, Human Rights Law, and International Humanitarian Law, because he doesn't need to sleep, apparently. Um, he is like the leading guy on advanced technology in terms of advising high-risk and rapid growth initiatives for companies such as Semantic, IBM, LexisNexis, Booz Allen, Hamilton, just a few, and maybe Wells Fargo in there. Um, he's also been the senior advisor to the Director of Intelligence and Advanced Research Projects Activity. Isn't that a lot to say? But we're going to call it IARPA and an Associate Deputy Attorney Gen uh, General Counsel at the Pentagon. He also is a former Marine. Can you imagine? All right. Um, never, never former Marine. Semper Fi. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Okay. So he's like lived a thousand lives. I just want you to know he's not a little old man either. So there you go. And our always friend of the cast who will serve as the adult in the room in charge of snacks, playtime, and good order, Adam Perlman. Adam has been the deputy, uh, well, the associate deputy general counsel at the Department of Defense. So you can see why he is the exact right person right now for this podcast. Um, He's that role, he handled complex civil and criminal national security matters, of course, in federal court, meaning, you know, Article Three courts, military courts. And he led the Supreme Court and appellate union of that team that was dedicated to litigating classified counterterrorism cases. So uh, his earlier service in the Department of Justice spanned four litigating divisions. Again, another overachiever. Um, so I'm not going to go into too much, but let me tell you where he is right now. He's the managing director of Lexpat Global Services, the former senior advisor for legal policy at the State Department's Counterterrorism Bureau. Um, I, you know, I could go on and on and on, and it's just never, ever going to end. But he has also been the editor of the Standing Committee's Intelligence Community Law Sourcebook. You're noticing a trend here, listeners. Maybe you ought to buy that thing. Um, Andrew and Adam are both fellows at uh, George Mason University's National Security Institute, and they are also members of the Council on Foreign Relations. Um, and that's where their similarities end. Well, I, I uh, yeah, Adam <laughs> is definitely the brains of the outfit, outfit on the uh, Intelligence Community Law Sourcebook. But uh, I do need to ask one of the interviewers, this is Andrew Barine here, to uh, why don't you ask me why it is so hard to catch these state-level malevolent cyber criminals? Why well, is it so hard to catch <laughs> hackers? Because they ran somewhere. Ah, no. 
Because they ran somewhere. You know what? We did not mention Andrew Breen's most important job, dad. Yeah, and that, that was, is uh, evidenced by his dad wow. joke. Thank you so, so I just much wanted for to, that. We're going to get into some heavy stuff here. And uh, I, I have always found that my, my favorite professors <laughs> are the ones that made me laugh because they triggered some kind of an endorphin response that caused me to retain information. So uh, we're going to, before we dig into the, the National Defense Authorization Act and cybersecurity policies and solarium commissions, I just wanted to get everybody's uh, creative and, and uh, memory juices flowing. So. Loves it. All right. With that endorphin rush, endorphin searing in my brain, what is the NDAA, Andrew? Yeah. Uh, so we talked about that. That is the National Defense Authorization Act. And before we dig into that, I think it's helpful to just give a little background on the difference between congressional authorizations and appropriations. Um, each federal program agency gets uh, its budget approved, so to speak, in an authorization bill year to year. Uh, the National Defense Authorization Act this year, uh, the one that was just passed uh, yesterday on Tuesday, uh, is more than $700 billion in spending. Now that approves the budget. And the other thing to think about is that there will be subsequent appropriations from appropriating committees. And that's where the checks get written out of the US Treasury into the agency. Um, so think of this as the if it was a family, uh, authorization acts are kind of like setting the family budget. Uh, and appropriations are like cutting checks out of the bank account uh, to pay vendors and, and the lawn service and, and all the other stuff that people do at their house. So uh, the National Defense Authorization Act historically uh, has been passed every year uh, for nearly 60 years. This might be the 60th year, I believe, since, since 1961 uh, without fail. It is such a pivotal bill uh, and, and such a giant part of uh, the the defense spend. Uh, it, it authorizes troop salaries, authorizes uh, equipment and uh, IT programs and all kinds of support for uh, the military component of foreign power uh, the president has. So uh, historically extremely important, uh, almost always passes uh, and not vetoed. So I need to give a little backdrop on that. Uh, and then um, uh, hopefully that answers the question. This is the budget approval for all of those various agency and department and office spending programs uh, within the military. A lot of other stuff frequently gets attached to it, which we can talk about a little later. All right, well, that begs the question then. You know, clearly the scope of this thing is massive. Department of Defense is the largest federal agency. I, I think, I don't know, Yvette, is it like even the second largest agency isn't even half its size, right? I mean, it's massive. True. I think there, you know, there was a statistic kicking around there that the. Department of Defense is the single largest employer in the world. I will like Google check that while we're podcasting, but it is massive. Yeah, and uh, so this of course begs the question, Adam and Andrew, what are the national security implications of the NDAA faltering or failing to be passed? Let's start with Adam. Thanks, Elisa. You know, there's a lot of layers in that onion and it only takes peeling a couple to make you want to cry. Um, you know, there are a lot of bona fide national security implications of this, uh, but there are also broader balance of power issues that might be worth a mention here. Now, there's no nuance in this scene setter, right? We're in a hyper-partisan time and Congress, with the possible exception uh, of you know, the House's veto-proof majority, you know, passing the NDAA by a veto-proof majority just yesterday as we're recording. Um, 
Congress hasn't always been moving like a well-oiled machine recently, even on some important national security matters. You know, for example, we all celebrate whenever an Intelligence Authorization Act gets passed. But as Andrew said, we expect the NDAA to pass. It is the must-pass bill every year. The Armed Services Committee worked really hard to make it happen. Some years are more difficult than others, but uh, you know, like Andrew said, 60 years, they've been remarkably successful uh, throughout all the other partisan fights. And in a way, the NDAA has become something of a talisman for the function of our government. You know, at, at the same time, that's not exactly healthy. It's almost like Congress puts all its national security eggs in one basket because everybody presumes that the NDAA will pass lots of other non-defense provisions get bootstrapped onto it. So many, in fact, that there have been proposals and academic circles to ditch certain department-specific bills in favor of a more comprehensive National Security Authorization Act. And that, in part at least, is how we get to the 4,500-page bill that Yvette mentioned earlier. There's a lot in there for DOD and others, including the budgets, you know, the funds and activities that must be authorized explicitly by statute. And with a bill that size, there are inevitably going to be provisions in it that certain people don't like, a select few of which might even be highlighted in presidential signing statements. And yet there will still be sections that fail to make it into the conference report for whatever reason that someone, perhaps even the president, would want to be in there. But a failure to pass it, which is not what we're looking right now, or a presidential veto, which has been threatened, would have wide ranging consequences for the operations of the Department of Defense and other national security entities. So on the one hand, the president shouldn't be too quick to raise the prospect of vetoing the bill. On the other hand, if there's something about the conference report that is so objectionable that it begets a legitimate veto threat, then one can legitimately ask why Congress would wanna play chicken with the president in a way that might jeopardize the entire act. You know, aside from that, there's the implication for the checks and balances more generally. There's been talk, again, academic and policy circles for a generation concerning Congress's diminished role in national security. There was a lot of controversy over the Bush administration's unitary executive philosophy that you all will remember. You know, the Obama administration didn't really use that term as much, but it certainly expanded the consolidation of executive power in ways that Senator Obama would certainly have objected to. And the Trump administration also appears to have had little use for Congress aside from its remarkable successes with judicial appointments. But bringing us back to the NDAA, by adding so many writers that should have been in other committees' own authorization acts, that signals a lot of dysfunction among those committees. For some, it's not just that they've been unable to get their own bills out, it's that they don't even seem to try. And that being the case doesn't do much to incentivize any president to take them any more seriously than necessary to meet legal thresholds. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think we can kind of shorten it down to that it would be unprecedented in the history of defense authorizations uh, for the bill not to pass. It's It's been such a reliable bill uh, that when Congress or uh, key committees want uh, other provisions passed, they attach them uh, to the NDAA. Um, and so the, the disruption uh, would be quite grave. So let's dig into some of those 4,500 plus pages. Uh, the NDAA uh, in recent years has become pretty noteworthy for its cyber provisions. Can we talk a little bit generally about what they are and how they herald a policy shift from present politics? 
Yeah, so the there are a number of cybersecurity provisions that are uh, really strategic level shifts in the way the U.S. government will uh, look at the president's power and the, the U.S. government's power in cyberspace, uh, both defensively and offensively. Uh, and these all fall into that category of not specifically or solely De Department of Defense or Pentagon or military related provisions, um, but uh, so important that, uh, you know, uh, overwhelming majorities in both parties uh, supported this uh, with a veto proof majority on passage. So um, basically on the cyber security front, uh, about a year ago, uh, something called the Cyberspace Solarium Commission was formed. Uh, in a previous National Defense Authorization Act uh, of FY19. Uh, and that commission spent a year making uh, a number of recommendations, which I can get into uh, a little later um, if, we, if you want to dig into the Cyberspace uh, Solarium Commission. Um, but this, this bill includes broadly 26 of the recommendations of the Cyberspace Solarium Commissions as individual statutory provisions uh, and more than 50 congressional staff recommendations on cybersecurity. Uh, so this is a, a really massive, not just cybersecurity, but also cyber offense, cyber operations, cyber policy uh, bill and set of statutes uh, that will create and authorize really interesting offices across the government. I think uh, perhaps most significant is that this bill includes a provision uh, to create uh, a kind of a cyber czar or a national cyber director. Uh, and that National Cyber Director would have, have an, uh, an entire staff and office uh, out of the executive office of the president. Uh, that's under Section 1752, which uh, for those of you who look it up in the notes to the podcast. Uh, on the defensive side, Section 1715 establishes a joint cyber planning office inside the Department of Homeland Security, uh, the CISA agency specifically, which a lot of people heard of with Chris Krebs uh, and his predecessor, Suzanne Spaulding. On the offense side, uh, Section 1746 uh, creates a, a mandatory review by the Department of Defense on U.S. Cyber Command, its authorities, its ability to control military offensive uh, cyber capabilities and deploy them into the world uh, on behalf of the president. And, um, you know, I guess the, the other key, th there, there are a number of those provisions. Those are the big ones that jump out at me from big U.S. policy establishment of a Senate-confirmed cyber czar, uh, defense, offense. Uh, and then another, importantly, that same commission uh, was reauthorized in this version uh, to be funded through December 2021 and continue making whole of government, whole of society uh, cyberspace recommendations. Okay, we've talked for a second here about the um, United States Cyberspace Solarium Commission, and obviously it's now been reauthorized, as you mentioned, through 2021. But let, let's just be, uh, let's just slow down a little bit more on this because this could get away from people. Um, let's be very clear what the commission is and why this particular reauthorization is noteworthy. Yeah, so reauthorizing the Cyberspace Solarium Commission is. Um going to continue the work of a really a blue ribbon panel of government private sector experts uh, on cyberspace and, and specifically to develop a consensus on strategic approach to defending the United States in cyberspace, cyberspace uh, against cyber attacks of, and here's the key words, significant consequences. So the uh, commission is looking at and making recommendations on 
the threats that come through cyberspace, the actors that act through cyberspace, the policies that affect cyberspace. And I said cyber so many times that uh, our eyeballs might roll in the back of our heads. Um, but they've made recommendations along six pillars and will continue to do so. So there may be future recommendations and provisions that come out to establish uh, whole of government, whole of society cyber policies uh, along the lines of reforming US government uh, structures, which, which are in this bill, uh, strengthening non-military tools, soft power tools to influence uh, how the US and its adversaries and allies uh, meet in cyberspace. Uh, increasing national resilience, that includes the private sector uh, and academia, uh, reshaping the cyber, cyber ecosystem. And that's important because the, the, the plumbing of the internet and things like 5G uh, and the, the, the nervous system and connective tissue uh, of international commerce are actually part uh, and parcel of this. It's not merely a military domain. I'll also add the healthcare sector, uh, you know, ransomware attacks uh, on hospitals, uh, shut down hospital operations during this pandemic. Uh, and even if there wasn't uh, this crisis related to coronavirus, uh, that would put US lives at risk if you interrupt hospital uh, operations with ransomware. So uh, the, the, the seriousness and the gravity of the consequences of attacks uh, on US infrastructure, and in, in, again, in the private sector, academic, healthcare, uh, all kinds of verticals that, that fall not under the specific purview of the president's ability to order them around, uh, you can start to see why it's so important that the Solarium Commission took a very holistic approach. Well, and and before we even move on, right, like we we just overnight heard that FireEye, um, which is a cybersecurity uh, firm. So cybersecurity is also now getting hacked. <laughs> so FireEye got hacked. And uh, now apparently there are they believe it's by Russian um, agents and their their tools that that they use as a as a cybersecurity firm are now in the wild and may be used offensively against us. Yeah, and I think that that's a very important point. Uh, those what they what, what what was reported in the uh, public filings uh, for FireEye as a U.S. public company in their what they called the 8K filing yesterday was that they believe they were hacked by a nation state actor uh, and that red team tools that are used, uh, you know, with permission offensively were stolen and could be used again. It, it kind of brings up uh, on the government side. Some of our listeners may remember the shadow brokers uh, who stole national security agency uh, tools. Uh, and that what that does is it it's a proliferation of cyber weaponry is the best way I can think to uh, explain what this is. Uh, proliferation of hacking tools, proliferation of potentially offensive capabilities um, that, that uh, frankly, without, uh, without a more seamless uh, effort between U.S. government, state, local government actors and private sector academic actors like we talked about, we're going to have a hard time defending and deterring uh, the United States uh, as a whole and our and our national interests. Um, we recommend our listeners uh, go back and listen to our amazing deep dive on the Solarium Commission with one of our 19 women uh, that we highlighted in national security law, friend of the cast, Suzanne Spaulding, uh, if you want to hear more about this particular uh, aspect of the NDAA. But Adam, uh, let's get in the weeds a little bit more here. Um, the NDAA also contains a section that tasked DHS with conducting a comprehensive review of the ability of the Cybersecurity Infrastructure and Security Agency, or CISA, to fulfill its current mission. Did we not hear just that CISA handled the election security issues and everything went well? 
Well, thanks, Yvette. There, uh, there are actually two reviews of, of CISA that the NDAA orders to be done. The one by DHS that you referred to and, and another by the General Services Administration. Uh, and of course, that's no small lift. Um, e even though reviews like this can be really important to organizations, and, and yeah, my firm is in the middle of conducting one now even, uh, it, it might be a bit peculiar given that CISA only became a standalone agency within DHS two years ago. You definitely want a review done by say year five, but two doesn't really give you much of a baseline to work from. A somewhat cynical view of this provision, which is uh, section 1745 for those of you keeping score, um, it's that you know Congress might be having some doubts. And to the form of the question, if we're putting blinders on and thinking about this only in terms of how it might relate to the election and election security, an especially skeptical critic might construe it as anecdotal support for the notion that things didn't really go as smoothly as Director Krebs had, had indicated. But at the same time, the text of 1745 ties the DHS portion of the review directly to the Solarium's recommendations. And simply put, you know, Congress didn't have the benefit of those recommendations when it passed the CISA Act in 2018. So I think that the better view is not to think of 1745 as some indictment of CISA, but rather as an implicit endorsement of the Solarium. And I think that is supported by what we heard earlier about the extension of the Solarium uh, into the end of 2021, and even another section of, of the NDAA, Section 1705, which somewhat expands CISA's authorities to strengthen federal networks by explicitly allowing them to, and this is a quote, hunt for uh, threats and vulnerabilities in other agency systems without even advance notice or to or authorization from those agencies. So, Andrew, do you have uh, anything to add on, you know, how the how the election went or whether or not it went well from a CISA standpoint? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the the common consensus uh, throughout independent security research firms uh, and government assessment at the federal and state level uh, and academic kind of viewers was that it was just another Tuesday in cyberspace, um, which when you think about it is a massive victory uh, when we saw the warnings about uh, state level actors targeting, uh, potentially targeting voting systems, potentially targeting uh, vote counts, uh, disrupting voter rolls. Um, and a lot of preparedness went into it. So, um, you know, it's, it's actually not just DHS CISA. They are one actor in a vast network. And I think uh, the, the kind of the tapestry of election infrastructure um, speaks to why, why it went pretty well. Um, you know, Chris Krebs gets credit uh, as the director of CISA, but also others at the federal level included Shelby Pearson, who was the intelligence community's uh, appointed election executive. Uh, appointed by Director Dan Coates at DNI, along with Bill Evanina from National Counterintelligence and Security Center. Uh, Bill and Chris Krebs spent time touring the entire country uh, and giving briefs to states, uh, Secretary of State's election administrators, uh, infrastructure providers on the threats and how to prepare. Um, you know, there was there's an entire election infrastructure ISAC or Information Sharing Analysis Center uh, that collaborates private sector, public sector. Uh, and state and federal resources, uh, they did great work. Uh, and again, you know, I mean, I mean, I think it speaks to uh, the seriousness with which the threat was taken uh, when all of those states and territories and election officials were able 
to uh, take advanced action hardened systems uh, and have some redundancy in their systems uh, so that that uh, election day went off without a major cybersecurity hitch. So, um, you know, I just wanted to kind of touch on that, that it wasn't merely a CISA effort. It, it speaks to how important holistic U.S. response is in protecting critical infrastructure. Uh, and, you know, certainly those uh, across those major agencies and at the state level understand that in, in the United States, our democratic election infrastructure is probably the most important uh, infrastructure we have for our uh, system of government. Okay, and that that's well put. Let me add something here, Andrew. We did have Dan Sutherland on, who is the general counsel to the CISA. For those of you who did not hear that podcast on exactly how they had hardened election systems and what they had done to prepare states, maybe you're a skeptic or maybe you just don't know. I would encourage you to go back and take a listen to that. You're going to hear um, a lot of overlap between what Andrew has just said. But uh, let's move on. So there's another issue that has to be tackled under the NDAA, uh, which also touches on a podcast that we have previously done um, back with Avril uh, Haynes, who is now uh, been appointed to be a member of the cabinet. Yay for her, by the way. Yay for her. Not she nominated. 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 But she'll uh, let's wish her the best and certainly she'll sail through. All right. Uh, another issue that has to be tackled under the NDAA uh, is the federal government's ability to recruit, develop, and retain its cyber workforce. Obviously, this is a hot topic. Um, this is very important. Um, how can you stay current? How can you stay on the ball? Um, let me ask your reaction to this, gentlemen. I'm going to start with Adam first, and then Andrew. How could this happen, and what should it look like? Well, I mean, Elisa, there's no, there's no talented cyber whiz who wants to get stuck in really either of the two big black boxes of the prevailing government hiring process any more than any lawyer like you or I would. Uh, you know, I'm talking, of course, about USA Jobs, the security clearance process, um, both of which, you know, your your info goes in and uh, you kind of lose visibility on it, and it's a long wait. You don't know the outcome. Um, but, you know, we've been talking about this recruitment and retention problem for, for years um, in, in a few fields, but especially cyber. Uh, and a lot of that talk has revolved around compensation. Bottom line, the general schedule scale, the GS scale, will never, ever, ever compete with what the private sector pays for these skills. We've known that. Um, historically, though, Americans haven't dedicated themselves to public service because of the money. So there are a few other things to consider here. A couple years ago, the National Commission on Military, National, and Public Service made some recommendations specific to the cyber field. And one that I particularly like is the almost ROTC-like concept of scholarships for in-demand fields in exchange for public service commitments. You know, another, um, as much as the term revolving door has a negative connotation to it. Another recommendation that has far-reaching strategic benefits is making re-entry into government jobs easier after leaving for the private sector. Now, here's the catch. By keeping the barriers to re-entry high, we, you know, the government might be able to retain more workers for longer periods of time who might otherwise be interested in leaving government despite their continued interest and dedication to the mission. You know, maybe, uh, certainly at the margins. 
But in doing so, that system has denied them the ability to make more money to support their families. Uh, it's denied them the opportunity to acquire skills and know-how in the private sector that when we are universally acknowledging that the private sector has at least a big of a role in protecting the nation's cybersecurity as the government does. And then also we've denied the private sector workforce opportunities to better understand public servants and public service. And that last point might seem a little bit weird to raise in this context until you remember, uh, despite, as Yvette mentioned earlier, the Department of Defense being the largest single employer in the world, that relatively speaking, the US government workforce is actually pretty small. Um, we can always argument argue that government should be smaller, leaner, more efficient, and I believe that in many ways it should be. Uh, but there are opportunity costs to that. And for national security purposes, let's take the military example. Uh, only about one half of 1% of Americans are active duty military. Only about 7%, including Andrew, have ever served in uniform. Um, it, it's hard to be more of a minority. Andy Vett, I might and, Andy Vett, I'm sorry, Yvette, you, <laughs> Yvette was Air Force. Uh, Andrew's Marines. Uh, Yes, go go Zoomies and 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 go Marines. Yes, my my bad. Um, but you know, it, pile on the the mere fact that no kid in college today has any recollection of 9/11. None. All they know is that the United States. I, I mean, not all they know. They're very they're very bright and capable people. But they do know that the United States has been at war for their entire lives. But very few of them have friends or family that have actually gone to war. And we've seen that impact manifest itself in a lack of understanding of important national security precepts. Uh, in the cyber sense, this has come through things like open letters from Silicon Valley workforces protesting their companies working with the government on national security programs. And I think that perhaps a bit more exposure to and interaction with those who have worked in government might lead to a little bit more empathy for them and the missions that they served in a strategic way and comprehensive way that that uh, you know rising tide can lift all boats uh, in terms of uh, developing the skills of our cyber workforce. Andrew, what do you have to add on that point? Yeah, no, it's uh, for those listening. Sections ninety four hundred one to ninety four hundred seven for those following along in their hymnal. Uh, but it really, those all are related to recruiting, developing, and retaining a stronger cyber workforce. Uh, the Cyber Solarium Commission uh, recommended vast improvements in education for cyber workforce, for scholarship grants, uh, for programs to prepare workers uh, in the United States uh, in, in the educational phase. So uh, again, recruiting and development of the workforce is really vital. Uh, and it, again, everything I think that we see in this bill related to cyber uh, is strengthening the holistic ecosystem. And, and, and I think, again, that's one of the, the cool derivatives uh, that makes this a, a really unique set of provisions in an NDAA that we haven't seen before. But I'd also like to, um, you know, call out uh, Adam's mention of the National Commission on Military, National and Public Service. As we say in the biz, there's a podcast for that. So please uh, go back and listen to um, the podcast with Avril Haynes and Paul Lekas on the, the National Commission, because there are a lot of great ideas on how to make um, national service more accessible and, um, you know, frankly, more part of the fiber of, you know, American society. 
uh, and, and making people more service-minded. So that brings us to our next question, um, which we're going to shift into some, some contemporaneous news. So President Trump has recently, in, in his uh, public press reports and statements, uh, has expressed a desire for Congress to eliminate Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. He wants that uh, to be included in the NDAA and says that without that provision, he will veto the bill. Um, he believes that elimina eliminating Section 230 uh, of the CDA will somehow force large platforms like Facebook and Twitter to um, allow more conservative content. Adam, can you talk about Section 230 and why um, there's this belief that it will help change organic posts on so social media? Well, uh, thanks, Yvette. Section 230 has sometimes been referred to as the law that created the internet. Um, it's a bit tongue in cheek, but it definitely has created the social media environment as we now know it. It legally classifies interactive computer services as its own category of media. These platforms aren't publishers of the content that they host, nor are they the speakers with respect to the content posted by others. So 230 bestowed upon internet companies a shield from potential liability from that content as well as any claims with respect to how they choose to moderate that content, which was what you were alluding to earlier in terms of allowing potentially more conservative content. Um, you know, the law passed in 1996. Uh, we were working off the original Pentium chip and the revolution of Windows 95. Netscape Navigator had something like 75% of the browser traffic market share Napster wouldn't launch for another three years, remember Napster? Uh, and believe it or not, we were a full five years away from even the first iPod. I'm not gonna try to think about when the iPhone came out. Um, and at that time, liability protection represented a major policy decision to promote the growth of these platforms without the chilling effect that comes from the threat of litigation. Uh, when it passed the bill, Congress made explicit findings that the internet had flourished to the benefit of all Americans with a minimum of government regulation, and that it serves as a forum of true diversity of political discourse. Well, that was then, and society's marveling at the miracle of the information superhighway has given way to a ubiquity and normalizing of communications technology and platforms. We no longer pay for minutes spent at our desks on Prodigy, CompuServe, and AOL. We binge for hours, sometimes in the background, on Netflix, Prime, Disney+, and we scroll sometimes for miles a day on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, even when we're on the move. And in the process of that, social media platforms have become a primary vehicle, not just for constructive political and social discourse, but also for things like bullying, spreading misinformation, sowing division, and mass distributing extremist materials. This is not news to anybody on this podcast. So Section 230 empowers the media platforms to make judgments about the content that they deem suitable for their respective fora uh, without the possibility of being sued. They are the masters of their domains. They control their domains. They can be the morality police. They can be biased without any legal consequences. And how some of these platforms have exercised their freedom to moderate their fora is, as you mentioned, what has become so controversial. 
So between that explosive economic growth of the tech sector and the not always positive changes in users' behaviors, there's a growing debate about whether Congress's findings back in 1996 that underpin Section 230 still hold true and whether it's the right policy now, given the fact that several of these companies essentially have market power over Americans and others' abilities to candidly express their ideas for their friends, followers, and others to see on those platforms. Now, as you mentioned, the president has clearly stated his belief that Section 230 has run its course. He sees certain platforms, uh, you know, their decisions to flag or remove specific posts, including some by him and many by his supporters, as censorship and reflecting an unfair political bias. And as you noted, he thinks this is so important of an issue that it might be worth threatening the entire NDAA over it. But it is important, as we said earlier, to think about the potential costs of vetoing the NDAA and whether gutting Section 230 will actually have the effect that he wants it to have. Will it? I mean, maybe to some extent, but there are several clear opportunity costs of going this route, uh, like with platforms' abilities to moderate terrorist uh, and other extremist chatter, in addition to what is surely a whole stable full of unintended consequences that we haven't yet realized. Um, so before we delve into potential consequences of a veto, I'd love to hear, you know, just a uh, kind of, a response to the hue and cry about the First Amendment um, around the, you know, Section 230. A lot of people claim, well, this interferes with my First Amendment rights. Can we talk about, like, why that's incorrect? Uh, all the law students out there, this is your issue spotting uh, exercise for the day. I mean, there's uh, there's a tension among rights. There's the First Amendment rights of, of users and free speech, and Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. You know, there's also the property rights of the platform owners uh, that are that are in tension with this. Um, and I, I think that goes back to, I, I started my career in Washington in antitrust and uh, my use of the phrase earlier about market power was, was not coincidental. It's sometimes the framework, you know, the frame of reference that I have. Um, the, the only, I, I think probably the only thing that actually makes this, you know, potentially a colorable First Amendment issue is because of market power of certain platforms, because barriers to entry to launch an internet site are nil, right? This is not a traditional uh, antitrust, uh, you know, economic analysis about selling products across lines. You can start a new website, a new platform in hours uh, at minimal cost. And the, and the issue is the network effects of uh, trying to get your message out to mil potentially millions of people instantly uh, suddenly, uh, I, I think, is where the concern over First Amendment rights comes from. So uh, it's not a standalone First Amendment issue, I don't think. Uh, you know, there are certainly arguments that can be made in a First Amendment context here. Um, even uh, without going into analyzing too much the time, place, and manner type tests. Um, but, you know, th this First Amendment, I think, is not exercised in a vacuum in, in this context either. All right. Well, that that's almost just the beginning of sort of a larger 
discussion generally. Um, but let's let's go to this morning's news. You know, we all got out of bed this morning to hear that sometime yesterday, the House, being just one of this bicameral chamber, has now passed the NDAA uh, with a quote veto-proof majority. So I guess a couple of questions, um, Andrew. What would be the implications? What would be sort of national security consequences? of vetoing the NDAA, um, and is this really a veto-proof, does this veto-proof the NDAA? Well, so, so real quick, we all need to go back to Schoolhouse Rock and the little bill sitting on Capitol Hill, uh, which I, I always encourage uh, law students and those of us that need a refresher on constitutional uh, legislative process to take a look at. Um, but the little bill is now uh, approved by both houses. Uh, I'll add also in July, the Senate version, which is not identical in language to what was just passed, but it passed more than 80 votes uh, this year. Uh, and in the House, it was 335 votes to 78 uh, with one abstention. So when they say veto-proof majority, what they mean is that more than two-thirds of those who voted on it uh, voted for it before it went to the president's desk in both houses. Um, what happens now is the president has 10 days, excluding Sunday, uh, to sign the bill, making it law, uh, to ignore it completely in what's called a pocket veto process, uh, or uh, to return it, veto it with a message uh, to both houses of Congress saying why he vetoed it, which he seems to have signaled in that earlier kind of uh, statement on White House policy. Um, the clock expires for Congress to what's called override the veto on January 3rd. Uh, on January 3rd, the next Congress is sworn into session, and then this entire effort would have to get kind of scrapped, and they'd go back to whole cloth, creating a new National Defense Authorization Act. Um, so kind of think, let's reverse plan. January 3rd's the cutoff. Uh, Congress will have uh, a, a period in time in which to regather both houses of Congress, and if they can establish a quorum of members, uh, and for those who remember quorum, that's a, a majority large enough to conduct official business. Uh, and then two thirds of those quorum, quora, quorums, <laughs> if two thirds of both houses quorums uh, vote for it, then the veto is overridden and the bill becomes law, regardless of what the president said in a veto. So when they talk about veto proof, that doesn't mean constitutionally it's already happened, but it does open it up uh, to the high likelihood that if this bill is vetoed by the president, it will go back. Uh, there have been a lot of members, both parties, uh, including the, the chairs and ranking members of armed services committees, saying that they want to call back uh, Congress into session in the event that this is not passed. So uh, there, there remains to be uh, seen some process here. Um, and again, Schoolhouse Rock, wonderful uh, primer on uh, bill to law and legislative process uh, for all of us. And it's a lot more fun than, than reading a giant tome, just throwing it out there. And I just, you know, I have one last question. Uh, maybe we can start with Adam and then go to Andrew. What do we think the consequences would be if veto-proof majorities in both houses notwithstanding, if Congress decided to cave put in a provision that, you know, nullified uh, Section 230, what do we think would be the response of the, you know, the social media giants and other, you know, web publishers, large and small? Uh, well, it, Yvette, I, I think that not only the threat of litigation will loom in just about any content-based decision that is made, but also the threat of uh, class action litigation uh, for, for a lot of these 
I'm not sure how that will manifest itself. I, I, on, I've never worked uh, for a tech company. I've never been in the room uh, in terms of uh, them determining uh, what their terms of service will look like, uh, but I'm sure that it will uh, bring a lot of people into the boardroom for some uh, serious discussions about um, how they manage day-to-day -day, uh, traffic on their sites. Yeah, I, I would just add, um, you know, I can't get into what, what will happen with Section 230. Uh, I will comment pro procedurally and sentiment of both houses, leaders, both parties have said that they are willing to look at a repeal of Section 230. Uh, and I think the, the issues that Adam just brought up uh, really explain why it requires a lot of thoughtful consideration. Um, you know, and, and so, so my, my belief is that uh, the Hill will address this issue in the coming Congress, uh, but the danger in trying to attach it to the National Defense Authorization Act at this time is that it would, for the first time in 60 years, derail uh, an extremely important budgetary bill uh, for the U.S. federal government and for military preparedness and, and troop salaries and equipping and all of the things that we need to have done uh, for the Pentagon. So, as always, we're going to hyperlink the NDAA. Um, I have 4,000 pages, folks, or almost 5,000. Um, but let's make it easy. We're also going to hyperlink uh, prior podcasts on the Solarium Commission and the Commission on Military and Public Service um, and articles on today's topics in the notes to the podcast. Adam and Andrew, always a pleasure to have you on. We look forward to talking to you again in the near future as we watch how this drama uh, unfolds. Um, and so thanks everybody for listening. Adam, Andrew, you guys rock. We hope you come back. Always a pleasure. Indeed. Th thank you again, Elisa and Annie Beth. And thank you all for listening. Uh, we will continue to deliver content to you during these difficult times so that you grow your knowledge of the law and all events that affect national security. Hey folks, remember to hit that subscribe button on your app of choice. Be sure to send us comments, feedback. We want to hear from you. You can find us at ABA NATSEC on Twitter, or you can email us at nationalsecurityatamericanbar.org. Standing Committee on Law and National Security will do whatever it can to keep you informed and give you context on fast-moving legal developments so you don't have to search for it beyond your smartphone or laptop screen. And don't forget the lawyers hosting this podcast are here in their individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or firm. Uh, be well, everyone. Be safe. We're all in this together, even though we're apart. And even though we all have different views, let's come together through education, knowledge and growth and actually listening. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.